on the topic of freedom. And as many of you know, my family and I just returned from a little holiday, during which time we traveled down to see my in-laws in Puerto Rico. And during that holiday, at one point, we took the boys to the far west coast of the island, where there's a famous uh, surfing beach. So the waves are high. And upon arriving, if you know my boys at all, we got there and saw the powerful waves, and that means we have to go in the water immediately. And so we got there, and we uh, I took the two oldest down into the water, into the, the surf there, and right away you realize that this is not your normal beach. There's a reason this is famous for surfing. The waves were indeed powerful, and I, and I hung on to their two wrists uh, with white knuckles for sure, because you realize quickly that the danger is not all where you assume it's going to be. Certainly there's danger there in that the waves are coming toward you, and you see them growing on the horizon, and they break into white caps, and then they crash into the beach, but you can see those coming, and you can brace yourself, and I can hold tightly so that we are not knocked off our feet. But there's another, a second danger that took me by surprise the first time it happened. And it's when the water is sucked back out to sea from behind us. It may be my imagination, but it felt like every time the water was sucked back into the ocean, it took inches from out from under us of the dirt. And that, the first time, took me by surprise. And I held tight to those two little boys. So we were fun to play in the surf. It's fun to play in the waves, but we need to understand the dangers that do exist there mainly because my two boys combined are 70 pounds and drastically overestimate their own swimming abilities, right? So I I hold tight to them, and we can enjoy it if we're aware of the dangers that exist, both the seen and, at first, the unseen dangers. Every Christian, every single one in here has trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their soul. Every Christian, so to speak, has been called by God to play in the waves of a specific culture, a specific circle of influence. Each and every one of us is to go into the place that God has providentially called us to do his gospel work. Now, some of us share some certain context. We share that we are in North America, in Canada, in the greater Toronto area. But each one of us has something specific, something unique to us, a classroom, a work environment, a family, in which we are called to go and be intentional in engaging. We are not to be Christians that sit on the beach and watch others engage the waves. No. Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, said, let your light shine. Go and make disciples. You will be my witnesses. So it becomes very clear as you read through the New Testament that as Christians, we are called to go and to witness and to proclaim with intentionality into whatever context the Lord has sent us. But as we go, we must be aware of and prepared for the potential dangers. Those that are seen and those that at first are perhaps unseen. We need to be prepared and dig our feet in so we can weather those storms. Some of those dangers will hit us head on. Just like those waves, we can see them swelling in the distance, growing with power. We can prepare ourselves. Like discouraging governmental policies. We see them coming, so we can prepare ourselves as Christians and as a church. Liberalizing school systems, and ironically, a growing cultural intolerance for the perceived intolerance of Christianity. The culture is increasingly being like, we don't tolerate your exclusivity, dripping with irony. 
But we can see these swells growing and coming at us, and so we can, with God's help, weather these storms, drop our shoulder, dig our feet in, and endure them. But there are other dangers that will come from behind, that will come and and threaten to take our feet out from under us if we're not careful. And these are myriad, unforeseen rejection by those formerly thought of as, as close friends. Doctrinal disunity within a church, or the unanticipated fracturing of a home. This was supposed to be a safe haven. How is there disunity here? It takes us by surprise. Well, as we strive to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the dangerous waves are as numerous as they are inevitable. I don't think I need to convince you of that. We've got to be prepared to endure them as Christians and as a church collective. And the obvious question becomes, how do we do that? How do we become prepared? How do we see them coming? How do we stand firm in the midst of the waves of the world? And in the closing chapter of his first letter, the Apostle Peter is going to provide us some guidance. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We've taken a bit of a break, but we're returning back to this study through Peter's epistles, these two letters in the latter part of the New Testament, where Peter is writing to believers— And as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, let's think back and recall the context of this first installment, this first letter. You may recall that Peter is writing here to Christians who have been scattered because of religious persecution. They've been thrown from their homes, and now while they're living abroad, they find themselves unwelcomed, and they find themselves mistreated. They're now living in cultures that, that don't understand their faith that don't accept their Savior and will not tolerate their religious practices. Does that sound familiar at all? Pastorally, Peter here, speaking to these trial-ridden believers, he's encouraging them, but he encourages them not to fight back or to posture in the culture or to regain control or to get into places of influence. That's not what he tells them to do. Instead, as we found as we went through this letter, Peter tells them to endure these trials with a smile, a knowing smile, clinging with thankful confidence to the joyful hope of the gospel. The joyful hope that the gospel affords them, all while striving to live holy lives in the midst of all the persecution. And as he comes to the close of his letter, and the salutation, the, 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 the departure, Peter gives three essentials we're going to find in this last chapter for standing firm amidst the waves of the world around them. Three essentials that that he's going to tell them to put in place so that they can stand firm when the waves come, the seen ones and the unseen. Interestingly, as we'll see in these three essentials, all of them have to do or connected are connected with the local church. Every single one of them. It's almost as if Peter is saying, if you want to stand firm as an individual Christian, well, your, your stability is directly related to the stability of your church family. You siphon stability off of the local church to which you are involved. If you look at verse 1, we find this first essential begin to take shape. And in verse 1, Peter begins by addressing the church's leadership. A church that stands firm in the faith and thus empowers her members to stand firm in the faith is a church that's led by diligent elders. Verse 1, Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal, as a fellow elder, and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Here comes the command, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, 
Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So here we have Peter as an elder, a fellow elder, commanding the other elders, note the plurality there, the other elders of the church. He's, he's commanding them to shepherd the flock of God that has been providentially entrusted to their care. Now, if we just think about the metaphor that he's using here, that is oftentimes used in the New Testament of a shepherd and sheep. We don't probably have a whole lot of shepherds in here, but we can imagine, right? What is, if we were going to boil down a shepherd's job description when it comes to his flock, what would it be? You'd say, well, they need to lead the flock. They need to feed the flock. They need to protect the flock. They need to lead them where they need to go. They need to make sure that they're well-fed, nourished, and protect them from predators, dangers. And if we were to go and read the job description, so to speak, of church elders given for us in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the pastoral epistles, we would find that those, those job descriptions really align with that metaphor. The elders of any church are basically called to lead, feed, and protect the flock that's been given under their, t- their care. But for Peter here in 1 Peter... It doesn't seem that he's really concerned that these elders carry out the tasks. They're already in place. They're already leading this church. Peter seems to be more concerned about how they carry out these tasks. He's more concerned about the manner in which they are feeding and leading and protecting the flock that the apostle is addressing. And you'll notice that that there's three pairs of contrasting motivations provided in this text that modify that command to shepherd. He says, shepherd the flock, and here's how. Shepherd not because you must, not out of some sort of weird obligation, but shepherd because you are willing. Shepherd not for dishonest gain, whether it be monetarily or some sort of reputation, ego stroke. Don't shepherd for that reason, but instead, shepherd eager to serve. Those two are opposite. Shepherding for for gain and then serving, as we'll see, is, is dying to self to lift up those who you're leading. Continue, shepherd not by lording the authority over people like some religious dictator, but by being examples, by being examples of godliness to the flock entrusted to your care. And so in some ways, these first few verses of the epistle are, for most of you who have not or are not serving as elders, they are an opportunity for you to eavesdrop on an on a, on a, in-house, kind of in-camera conversation for elders. One elder speaking to another says, this is what they're called to do. You can listen up, listen in. And what he's saying is, a church that stands firm is led, fed, and protected by elders like this. Ones that lead in this way. And remember, when this letter was penned, it was given to the church, and they read it publicly. So the whole church is listening in as Peter implores these elders to lead in this way. The elders, while they're not infallible, they're not perfect people. They're still people. They're still, they're not infallible, but they are diligent to shepherd with this selflessness, with this gentleness, and with inspiring godliness. It's a heavy task. It's a weighty task for an elder, knowing that they will one day give an account to God for the sheep that have been put under their care. That's something that wakes them up at night. They will stand and give an account for your souls the ones that you have been entrusted to their care. And so Peter, perhaps knowing that, he laces in some motivation to prompt them along the way into these first few verses. 
First, they're to remember Christ's sufferings. He wove that into the first verse. It says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. Elders are to follow the example of Christ himself who laid his life down for the sheep. And so elders look at the chief shepherd and say, if he laid his life down for the sheep, then so must we. And the second motivation is found in verse 4. And it's the anticipation of what Christ's, Christ promises for faithful, diligent elders. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, who's the chief shepherd? Jesus, right? And notice what he's saying here, when the chief shepherd appears. He's coming again. And when he comes, you, elders, will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So we see here in this first section that diligent elders, though they may at times be dishonored at earth, on earth, never in this church, but I've heard stories, you know, though they may be dishonored on earth, there will come a time when the great shepherd will appear and he will reward them in heaven. And so there's some motivation for them to do this job the way God has called them to do this job, laying their life down like Christ did for the sheep. One pastor, Chuck Swindoll, once wrote that every church is the lengthening shadow of those who lead it. In other words, every church somewhat over time takes on some of the characteristics of those who lead. It's just inevitable, he notices. So if elders are malnourished in the word, then inevitably and eventually the church will eventually become malnourished in the word. Not able to handle it properly, not able to cut it straight, rightly divide the word of truth. The leadership can't do it. Over time, the church will not be able to do it either. If the leadership is unconcerned about lost people, they just don't think about unsaved people and evangelism, then the church too will one day take on those characteristics. Elders that tolerate sin, whether sin in their own lives or in the lives of their flock, are essentially preaching an apathy toward personal holiness. And it will trickle down from the leadership into the congregation. Or if there's disunity among the elders, that will spawn a fractured church. It is the lengthening shadow of those who lead it. However, if by God's grace a church is led by elders who are diligent to lead, like Peter has described here, are diligent to lead as God has called them to lead, the church will stand firm amidst the waves of the world. They will. It's interesting to me that in a letter on suffering, like 1 Peter is, if you were to summarize 1 Peter, it really is pain with a purpose. And we've seen that throughout this letter, that there's pain coming, but the Lord can use that pain to prompt you toward holiness and to, to prune us and to prepare us. So in this letter on, on suffering, Peter publicly admonishes the church elders because church leadership is crucial to body faithfulness. And so as we come to the end of verse 4, I guess the plea is, if you're not in the practice already, please pray for your elders. It's a weighty task. It's a heavy task. They do so joyfully, I know firsthand. They do so joyfully, but it is not without its burden. And we all benefit from faithful elders, and so we pray for them. So after addressing the leadership of the church specifically in the first four verses, Peter now shifts his attention to the people of the church generally. He turns his attention to the flock. And he adds this second essential for standing firm in the waves. While the first was a church that stands firm is led by diligent elders. The second, as we find in verses 5 through 7, is that it is filled with humble believers. It's filled with humility in the pews. 
For a church to stand firm in faith, it must be filled not with warriors or scholars or influencers, but with people of humility. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Again, it seems so counterintuitive. As the, way, as the waves grow higher and the culture becomes increasingly intolerant, part of me wants to stand up and clench my fists and get to work, right? But Peter says, no, 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 no. Practice humility in the body of Christ. That's how you withstand the waves. How does that work? Well, we need to understand what humility is, biblically, to understand how this works. Uh, Humility is really the freedom from having to think about ourselves. That's what humility is, the freedom from having to think about ourselves. Oftentimes, we make the mistake of saying, well, there's the people that love themselves, the self-lovers, they're full of pride, and the self-loathers, they're full of humility. But biblically speaking, they both struggle with the same sin. They both struggle with pride. Why? Because themselves, they are at the center of their own attention. Whether it's because of their self-love or their self-loathing. Biblical humility comes along and says humility is the opportunity to not think about yourself. To be free from having to think about yourself. And this really finds its legs in a local church context. Because in the church, instead of thinking about ourselves, we are encouraged to not think about ourselves, but our God. And one another. Instead of thinking about myself, I'm full of the things above. I have the mind of Christ being built in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think about his beauty and his perfections and the redemption he's given me. And my future in Christ. I think about all of those things. And all of a sudden, things of myself are put on the back burner. And as I become more full of the knowledge of God, that spills out sideways. And I start thinking about my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And all of a sudden, we have biblical humility. Where I'm not thinking about myself, I'm thinking about you. And you're thinking about me. And we're thinking about God together. That's biblical humility. And that's why he says over and over again, you got to submit to your elders. How can we do that? Elders are imperfect. How can we do that? Only for thinking about God and the things of God. How can we submit to one another with humility toward one another unless we're thinking about God first? How can we cast our anxiety on him unless we know him enough to know that he can be trusted with that anxiety, with those cares? So we can't do it unless we're filled with the things of God. And in this text, Peter is saying a church that stands firm in the waves of this world is a church that is filled with people like that. People that, that think and pray and help and encourage one another. And the question is, how do we get there? And just like with the elders... He sprinkles on some incentives into this text, some motivation to prompt us toward this pursuit of holiness. We pursue holiness as we, or we pursue humility, as I said, because we're looking at God. If we scan back through that text that we just read, verses 5 through 7, we see this, this characteristic of God on display and then a natural promise that we can take from it. Submit yourselves to your elders and it says, close yourselves in humility in verse 5. Why? Because God opposes the proud. But he shows favor to the humble. Well, there's motivation. I don't know about you. I want favor. I want favor from the Lord Almighty. I don't want him opposing me. So there's motivation right there. I want to pursue humility because I want to be favored by God. 
Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand. He's strong. Why would I humble myself there? Because he may lift us up in due time. There's motivation again. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him, all the cares of this world. Throw it at his feet. Why? Because he cares for you. That's why. There's motivation built right into the text. How can we pursue this humility that seems so antithetical to the culture we live in and seems so counterproductive when it comes to standing firm? How can we do that? Because of who God is and because of what he has promised. It's only when we, as individuals, as families, as a congregation, take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on our God, his character, and his promises that we actually become truly humble in the biblical sense. And that humility allows us to stand firm in the waves of this culture. I once read someone comment on that momentous day when the Lord Jesus, you'll remember this scene, when he entered Jerusalem riding a donkey. And the streets were lined with people, cheering, anticipating this coming king. They had palm branches, they were waving, and they were calling out, Hosanna! Hosanna! And this author concluded with this this prying thought. Wouldn't it be something if that donkey thought all the praise was for him? Wouldn't that be funny if that donkey that the Lord was riding thought, oh, they love me. They really love me. i got to be honest. I'm not so sure if I'm not like that misguided donkey at times. I see, the, I see the Lord working. I see him doing things in my life and the lives of many of you. We have a front row seat at times to his grace in salvation. All of these things. And at times I want to sit back and take some of the credit. That's not Humility. I need to repent of that and look back to God, his power, his awesomeness, and realize that God is great and I am not so great in comparison. And it's only when my mind is full of who God is that I can truly be free to be free from thinking about myself and free in that biblical humility. As we learn to walk in humility, as this text told us, we are favored We are lifted up in due time, and we are cared for beyond our comprehension. And a church that is filled with people like that will stand firm in faith, no matter what waves come, seen or unseen. Now finally, we come to verse 8 and following. We find this third essential that Peter lays before these trial-ridden believers. And he says that a church that stands firm and thus empowers her members to stand firm is also kept by vigilant watchfulness. There's a watchfulness that we are called to. Look at verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Anyone. He's not even picky. He wants just someone. He wants a meal. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. There's our command. Stand firm in the faith. Peter's saying to stand firm, we must keep Watch. Keep our eyes open. The devil is real. He's cunning. He's powerful. And he is hungry. So we stay vigilant and we watch for him. Think of those old castles back in the day where they would have night watchmen at every battlement. And they're all looking out to the horizon from different vantage points, looking for danger approaching. It's the same in the church. We're all in different battlements. We're all looking out to the horizon. Where is danger? I can't see the panoramic view but I know my brother or sister has my back. And they're watching that way, and I'm watching this way. And together, we can see all around us to keep watchful, keep vigilant watch for this danger, for this enemy that's looking for someone to devour. As we continue in verse 9, Peter provides this incentive again. He says in verse 9, Resist him, that's the devil, 
standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. I don't know about you, but one of the great tricks the enemy likes to play with me is convincing me that I'm unique in my suffering, that I'm unique in my trials. No one would understand. You know, it's, it's just so unique to me. I can't share it with anyone because no one would even get it. And when the enemy works like that, he silos us off from one another, from our true source of stability, which is one another. He silos us off when he convinces us that we're unique. Here, Peter's saying, look up. Believers all over have suffered. Believers all over throughout time have suffered and have stood firm, kept watch. It is possible. Reminds me from in Hebrews chapter 12, with that great race scene that I know you know off by heart. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, the race marked for us. Who's lining the streets, this cloud of witnesses? It's saints that have come before us and said, it can be done. Keep going. Stay watchful. Stay vigilant. We've done it. We are a testimony to the fact that God is good and he will see you through this. So we want to stay watchful. In verse 10 here, or sorry, in verse 9, Peter is saying, look around. Look at other believers. Know that you are not alone. You are not alone. In verse 10 and 11, he continues the incentive for why we should stay vigilant and stay watchful. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, who saved you, the same God, after you have suffered a little while. Isn't that quaint? A little while. Little, how can he say a little while? He doesn't even know all of them. How can he say a little while? It's in the scope of eternity, right? If one of these believers receiving this letter had suffered from their first breath to their last breath, that wouldn't make this any less true for a little while. Because as a believer in the scope of eternity, this life is a vapor, right? So though you may suffer for a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore you. And make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So how can we endure and continue to be watchful and diligent, resisting the enemy that wants to devour us? We look forward and remember that we are promised full deliverance, full glorification, full strength. And it's coming soon. It's just for a little while that we suffer. It's like on a road trip, you know, when you're driving in the night and your eyes are starting to get heavy and you wonder, how much longer can I go? It's been so long. And then all of a sudden, a road sign comes up with your destination listed there and it says, you know, 50 kilometers. You say, hey, I can do that. All of a sudden, I'm awake again. I can make it that far. It's the same. Peter's coming along here and saying, you might grow weary. It's wearying being watchful all the time. The enemy is persistent and he has a lot of game tape to study on us humans. He knows us. So it can get wearisome. We look ahead and he says, look ahead, the destination is coming. And it's a perfect destination. So continue on, be watchful. A church that stands firm is one that is watchful. If we see sin or, or concerning habit in one another's lives, for their good, for the good of their family, for the good of the church family, we're to call it out in one another's lives. Whoa. No, talk about sin with one another? I'm supposed to approach someone and talk about, hey, I'm concerned. We don't do it with condescension in our voice, but with concern. I, I'm concerned. I see something. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see something that troubles me. 
we follow the Matthew 18 prerogative of, of go one-on-one. Brother, sister, maybe I'm wrong, but I see something that I think we need to address. That's being watchful. That's being vigilant because the enemy wants that foothold. He wants into their life, into their family's life, into the family of the church. And my, my goodness, if we're the one confronted, you know, if someone comes to me and says, I'm concerned, brother, I see something in your life. God, help me. You know, give me the humility in that moment, Lord, to say, you know what? My sanctification, my pursuit of holiness is far more important than my comfort and my imagined perfection and pride. If someone is concerned enough to come toward me and say, I'm concerned about this, Lord, give me the humility to take it seriously. This is something that is largely absent in the church today, this this dogged pursuit of corporate holiness. But it's so needed, and it's all over the pages of the New Testament. We need to understand that to keep watch over our lives and the lives of one another is not legalism, it's love. True love. This is what love looks like. It's not intolerance, it's true Christian community. It's not judgmentalism, it's godly concern. Not only that, it's our divine mandate to one another in the body of Christ. What kind of church stands firm and thereby empowers our members to do the same? A church that is led by diligent elders, filled with humble believers, and kept by vigilant watchfulness. That's how we stand firm. In the waves coming and the ones that we don't see coming. This is how we stand firm. And when by God's grace we grow in these areas, we as a church increasingly are prepared to stand firm in the faith. Verse 12, to the end of the book. Peter concludes, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And here it is again. Stand fast in it. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, the church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And there's our application for this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Stand firm in the faith. That doesn't happen by accident. It's been said that holiness is not something into which we drift casually. We don't drift. It takes intentionality. It takes clinging to the truths of Scripture. We cling to it. We discipline ourselves like Paul did. We discipline one another. We hold each other to Christ's high standard together. We can only do it together. We stand firm in the faith. We be watchful, be humble, be willing to be led by diligent under-shepherds who will feed, lead, and protect us through the waves of this world. We stand firm in the faith. Now, as I alluded to at the beginning of our time together, as we conclude, all three of these essentials that Peter lays out to this struggling church, this church that's existing in a culture that does not like them, that does not understand them, will not accept them, all three of these essentials are only available in the local church. Elders are responsible for those under their care in the church. Humility is to be practiced with one another in the church. We are to keep watch for one another in the church. You know, if we are to stand firm in the faith as individual Christians and as Christian homes, we've got to prioritize this church life, this body life. It has to be a priority. Something that has certainly fallen on hard times in recent years. Body life is, is really, I was thinking about this this morning even, it's, it's oftentimes treated, maybe not here, but in evangelicalism at large, in the church at large in 21st century North America, it's treated as, as more of an accessory to the Christian life. 
You think of a woman who has a new outfit and has a purse, and it's like, oh, that purse just puts the outfit together perfectly. It's not really a practical-looking thing, is it? It comes in all different shapes and sizes, but it just puts the outfit together perfectly. And that's how some people treat the church. You can be a Christian, a great godly person, and if you want, pick your size and color of a church. It doesn't really matter. Hang it around your neck. It's a nice little option. I don't need to tell you that this mentality is patently unbiblical. It's not true. The church is is the living organism out of which we get our edification, our growth, our protection. Everything comes out of this as imperfect as it is. And the Lord's metaphor is perfect here. We see this this metaphor of the the sheep and the shepherd. Who are the most safe, well-fed, warm sheep in the entire flock? The ones in the middle. The ones right there in the middle. Who are the ones in danger? The sheep that casually walk to the sides, maybe wander away to get a better view. They're in danger of not being fed, of getting lost, of getting eaten by predators. The metaphor is perfect by the Lord. We want to be people who gather together for safety, for nourishment, for warmth, for protection, all of that in together as a flock with our great shepherd who is yet to come and under the under-shepherds who he has appointed to lead us. I know this is countercultural. It's countercultural. But we must prioritize body life, brothers and sisters, if we are to be safe, if we are to stand firm in these waves that are coming and will be coming, the ones we see and the ones we don't see. And so I encourage you this week at some point, just sit down with your, your calendar and, and your weekly calendar. Just prayerfully ask the Lord, you know, when the storms come, am I sufficiently anchored in the harbor that God has graciously provided in the local church? This isn't legalism. This is a, this is a outpouring of biblical wisdom. Am I involved here? Sunday morning, it's fantastic. Crucial that we gather together to sing praises, sing to one another songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sit together submissively under the word of God, offer prayer. This is crucial. But is it enough? That's between you and the Lord. Are you safely rooted? Are you inside the flock? Do people know you? Could you say, I've seen other people's humility. I've been the benefactor of their humility. The elders know me and care for me. Can I do that? Can I say that someone is watching my back? That they have that vigilant watchfulness for me because they know me. They know where I struggle. Am I known that much? This is the offer that Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts before believers. He says, you want to be safe? You want to be safe? God has provided a place to be safe. Are we going to walk into that flock or not? That's the question. Brothers and sisters, there's safety here. There's growth. There's all these good things that we can not only go into the world with the gospel, we can go into it confidently. Not worrying about the waves. Like me gripping those two little wrists in the ocean. They weren't going anywhere. And that's what God offers to us as we go out into this world to be faithful stewards of what he's given us and to bring the glorious gospel into otherwise dangerous places. Let me pray for us right now as the music team comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this assignment. We know that you don't need us to accomplish your purposes, but it has pleased you to invite us to be used by you for your purposes. And so because and motivated by our love for you and what you've done for us and who you are, we want to do a good job. We want to be faithful. Even right now as we pray, each of us can think of those contexts. We can think of individual people that you've put on our heart that we want to share with. We want them to know the freedom, as Lou told us about, the freedom that comes along with a relationship with Jesus. But Father, as we march out into the surf, there are dangers. 
Some of them we see coming, others will blindside us at the time, but we want to be prepared. We don't want to be swept off our feet. We want, don't want to be knocked down. We want to stand firm. And you've told us how to do that. And so we ask for your help as individuals, as families, as a church family, the help of your Holy Spirit to stand firm in the faith. We want to stand firm in the faith, Father. We need your help to do it, and we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.